John was a man with what we call a strong personality. He was opinionated, he was outspoken, and if he got into a disagreement with you, his goal rarely was to find common ground. He wanted to win the argument. In fact, in virtually every area of life, John wanted to win and prove that he was better than you. Some of that attitude came from his upbringing. You see, his father was a successful businessman, so John, growing up, enjoyed a, a more comfortable life than many of his peers. And I find it really fascinating, but it's true, that if we're blessed to have money and nice things, we often wind up feeling that alone makes us better than other people. Well, that certainly was true for John. And it caused him to walk through life with a sense of pride. Now, people liked him because he was fun-loving. He also had a serious side. And he definitely was not afraid of hard work. But nobody wanted to get on John's wrong side. And they definitely didn't want to get into a disagreement with him because they knew he'd be relentless. When the chips were down, John put himself first, and you were a distant second. When the chips were down, John was not a very loving man. And then something happened. John became a Christian, and he began to change. And over a period of several years, he let Jesus get a grip on his mind and on his heart and on his soul. And he stopped living as if the world revolved around himself. Because he began to learn what it really means to love others from God's perspective. And it's really important for us to understand that, that love in the kingdom of God is so different than the way we tend to view it as humans because we typically treat love as an emotion. And this is reflected in our language. We feel in love. We fall in love. But through the influence of Jesus, John learned that God views love as a lifestyle. He learned that godly love always translates into action. He learned that Christians actively practice love in their relationships with one another. Now, John didn't learn that only from what Jesus taught about love. John actually was a direct recipient of Jesus' love. Because the John I'm describing is the Apostle John. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples and the author of this Bible book that we're currently exploring together. The Apostle John was changed by Jesus' love and we can see this so clearly in the trajectory of his life. When John first decided to become a follower of Jesus, you know what his nickname was? He was called a son of thunder. And boy, was that a great way to describe his loud and aggressive demeanor. On one memorable occasion, 
John got mad when a city rejected the message of Jesus, and John wanted to call down fire from heaven and see that city and all the people in it burn to the ground. Jesus said, uh, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but it's a clear indication that John found it easy to get angry and to seek retribution. He really was a son of thunder. And yet, by the latter part of his life, John was given a new nickname by the Christian community. You know what he was called? He was called the Apostle of Love. From son of thunder to Apostle of Love. How could that transformation happen? It happened because Jesus actively showed John how to love. So when John messed up, Jesus lovingly corrected him. And when John did the right thing, Jesus lovingly affirmed him. And Jesus did that same thing with all of his disciples. And as a result, over a period of roughly three years, Jesus took a disparate group of men, a group of men who didn't all like each other, a group of men who often competed with each other, and he transformed them into a loving band of brothers. And when Jesus was crucified for their sins and for the sins of humanity, then they understood in an entirely new way what it means to be loved by God. And as Jesus poured out his life on the cross, they understood also what it means for one human being to actively love other human beings. All of that shaped John and transformed him. It's no surprise then that he writes a lot about love in this letter to the church that we've been reading. In the passage we looked at last week, John talked about love. In the passage we're going to look at now, he talks about love. John keeps coming at this issue because he wants us to be gripped by God's love the way that he is. And he wants us to be changed by God's love the way he has been changed. Here's an important thing for us to see, though. Even though John is talking about love again, he's not repeating himself. He's taking time to emphasize different aspects of love. As we saw last week, one of the marks of a healthy community of faith is that we have the privilege of living together as God's beloved children. And this week, we'll see that another mark of a healthy community of faith is that we actively practice love toward one another. John wants us to know that love is far more than words. Love is far more than feelings and emotions. Love is action. He also wants us to know, though, that sometimes emotions drive us to behave in ways that are the exact opposite of love. And that's why emotions aren't reliable. And that's where John begins this part of his letter, as we see in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. 
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And as we're going to see, that's the difference that led to jealousy. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We might also say the brothers and sisters, loving each other within God's family. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John reminds us at the outset that the foundation of our life together is love. That principle comes directly from Jesus who told us that the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. And therefore, love is a quality that should stick to us, both as individual believers and as a church. And in fact, love is so foundational that John equates the lack of love with murder. I mean, let's face it, that's a harsh statement. But John arrives at that conclusion logically by highlighting the feelings and actions of Cain, whose story is told in the book of Genesis chapter 4. Cain murdered his own brother, a man named Abel. And what drove him to do that? His emotions. His emotions which were not shaped by love. The foundational problem was this. Cain's relationship with God wasn't right. But Cain did what human beings often do. He didn't deal with the real issue. Instead, he looked at his brother Abel. Abel did have a right relationship with God. So rather than fix his own problem, Cain got jealous of Abel. And that jealousy led to anger, and his anger led him to kill his brother to murder him, to steal his life. Now that's an extreme example, but think about how often misdirected anger leads to relational conflict. You and I can feel inner turmoil over all sorts of things. Maybe God's convicting us of something, and instead of looking at ourselves and striving to get right with God, what do we do? We excuse our own behavior, and we look around for somebody else to blame. We look around for someone else to be the focus of our anger and distress. And jealousy is particularly insidious because it can drive us to deep-seated anger and bitterness and hate. And those are murderous attitudes because they can lead to actions which kill our relationships with other people and even with God. Here's another way to look at this. A lack of love for other people can lead to a void in our lives. And if we fill that void with ungodly emotions or attitudes, such as jealousy, then it can cause us to lash out in ways that are harmful to others. It even can cause us to act in ways that are evil. And that's what Cain did. 
Now, thankfully, the majority of human beings don't commit murder. <laughs> but John says that some ungodly behavior actually is the equivalent of murder. That's what he's telling us here. And, and think about how that plays out. Isn't it interesting that when we slander someone, it's often called character assassination? <laughs> Why do we call it that? Because we can ruin someone by destroying their reputation with slanderous comments. It's the moral equivalent of murder. A number of years ago, there was a national politician who was targeted by his political enemies. And as usual in politics, they were doing so because they were driven by jealousy over power. In politics, that's almost always what it comes down to. I'm jealous of your power, so I'm going to come after you. And this particular politician was accused of all sorts of horrible things. He was hauled before Senate committees. He was even put on trial. And after months and months of mo and months of having his name dragged through the mud in the press, he was finally cleared of all charges. All. And he went to the senator who had engineered all of this, and he said, Senator, where do I go to get my reputation back? And he couldn't. Even though he was politically and legally cleared, he never could fully remove that stain against his name. His character had been murdered. It's the kind of thing John's talking about here. And he's particularly concerned if it happens in the church. And the attitudes of jealousy and hate that lead to slander, those are the ways of the world. They're the ways, John says, of darkness and even the way of death. And he doesn't want those kinds of attitudes and actions sticking to us. And instead, he invites us to follow the way of life, which is to embrace the love of Jesus and to share it with each other. It's not always easy to love other people. And sometimes, John says, it's harder to love because other people will hate us. <laughs> Yet a follower of Jesus does not respond to hate with hate. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We do not respond in kind to the world's behavior. John knows, knows how to say that and believe it because he personally learned it from Jesus. So I mentioned earlier this incredible moment. Jesus, here's a city that rejected you. Let's ask God to burn it down. <laughs> Jesus said, no. We're not going there. When followers of Jesus do not respond rejection with rejection, when we don't respond to hatred with hatred, when we don't respond to anger with anger, then at some point outsiders will notice that we are different. There's something different about me. There's something different about you. There's something different about us, the church. Outsiders will see that even when they are pressed Follower of Jesus, stick to a life of active loving because we let God's love stick to us. And that's because love is foundational 
to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in fact, John says, love is so foundational that if we actually hate a brother or sister in Christ, then we do not have eternal life. He's saying, if you're filled with hate, you're not a believer. I mean, that's a hard statement, and it's one we must wrestle with. And here's what I think he may be saying. A person filled with hate perhaps has made an outward profession of faith, but they've not truly repented. If we are unloving and full of hate, then Jesus is not in our hearts. And his spirit is not producing fruit in our lives. To be filled with hatred is to be far from God. And we don't want to ever arrive there toward each other. And we don't even want to start heading in that direction by allowing dislike and disrespect to creep into our relationships with other believers. If we let that happen, I think we're playing with fire. We are invited to love. And so, as John says here, we don't embrace love as a feeling, but it needs to become an active part of our lifestyle. And then having expressed this, where emotions are not what love is about, he wants now to provide us with a very practical example of love in action. If we are supposed to, in fact, not just love in word, not just love in feelings, but actually do love, what does it look like? He gives an example. He wants us to be mindful of others, to take our eyes off ourselves, to be watching what's going on with people around us, and when we see someone in need, then to be willing to extend generosity. So let's continue on. Verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, obviously talking about Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But... If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, meaning he doesn't meet the need, how does God's love abide in him? And here's the key sentence. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Obviously, when it comes to extreme, sacrificial, loving generosity, there's no better example than Jesus dying for our sins. John says that when we, when we consider what Jesus has done, we should, if necessary, be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice like that on behalf of another person. Now, some people think John is saying we should all then be martyrs. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think it should be our life goal to become a martyr. And in fact, if every Christian becomes a martyr, that would be counterproductive because if we all die for the faith, there's nobody left to carry on the faith and to bring God's light into the world. I think what John is doing here is using Jesus as an example for the point that he wants to make. We had a need to be forgiven of our sins. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh. He had the means to meet that need. 
And so he generously sacrificed himself for us so that our need to be forgiven and experience God's love could be met. That's the example. And he says, if that's the example, then if we have the means to meet the, other, the need of another person, why wouldn't we be generous and do so? Why wouldn't we follow the example of Jesus and be generous and even sacrificial? Jesus practiced active love toward us, and so we should practice an active love toward each other. And yet we need to admit that loving others doesn't always come naturally. It's not always easy to be generous because for many of us, our sinful instinct is to be selfish. And so we can talk all we want about generosity. Easy to talk about sitting here in church, right? The question is this. Will we actually practice generosity when we're put to the test? in the moment of daily life. And this is so vital because it's our behavior, not our words, not our feelings, it's our behavior that reveals the condition of our heart. It is our behavior, not our words or our feelings, it's our behavior that reveals the level of our faith. And so John here is inviting us to change the way we act. And for many of us, it means we need to change the way that we think. For example, if you or I encounter someone who has a practical need, how do we respond? For most of us, here's what I think our unspoken default response is. I'm not going to help unless I really sense God prodding me to do so. I've felt that way a lot in my life. But I've come to realize that's not the attitude of love. I become convinced that Jesus wants our default response to be the exact opposite, to be open-handed rather than tight-fisted. And so when we see a brother or sister in need, what we say to ourselves is, I want to find a way to help unless God should compel me not to. The default to say yes rather than no. John asks us here to love each other in truth, which means love can't be pretend. We can't posture. It's got to be sincere. And that means when I say, I love you, brother, I love you, sister, it's got to be active. Can I do something with that? And you know what? When we choose to do something loving, then there are times when it will be costly. I learned that lesson for the very first time during my sophomore year in college. At that point, I'd been a Christian about three years, still trying to figure out this thing called the life of faith. One afternoon, I'm walking across the campus of our university. I bump into another guy that I had briefly met on a previous occasion. He was a fellow Christian, and we started chatting. He was from the inner city of Los Angeles. He was there at the university on a scholarship, and I knew that money was very, very tight for him. 
And we were entering into the winter season, and I had on a coat, and he was in shirt sleeves, and I noticed he was shivering. And I said, how come you're not wearing your coat? And he said, because I don't own one. Well, we talked for a while, and as he talked, I felt like the Holy Spirit was knocking on my heart. Love your brother. He's in need. Give him a coat. And I kept talking and avoiding that issue because I didn't want to give him a coat. (laughs) Here's my brother. He had no coat. I actually owned two coats. So I could spare one, but I didn't want to. I liked having two coats. (laughs) I liked having the choice. And so as the Spirit is working on my conscience, I keep arguing with God. And I kept coming up with newer, better arguments like, well, you know, Lord, I know I got two coats, but he's here on scholarship. I'm not here on scholarship. I'm working. I'm paying my own way through college. Nobody's helping me. That wasn't the point. We can come up with plenty of reasons to rationalize. But none of those reasons change the fact that here's my brother in Christ shivering in the cold. And I had the ability to meet that need. And so eventually I relented to what God was saying to me. And I invited him back to my dorm room. And I said, here's the coat on the rack, here's the one on my back, pick the one you want. And he took one of those coats. Now, please understand, I don't mention this to pat myself on the back because this was not obviously an easy thing for me to do. And I have to admit that there have been many times since then when I've neglected the opportunity to meet the needs of other believers. But God used that experience to teach me the importance of what John writes about here in our Bible passage. When I have some goods of the world in my possession and I can use some of those goods to help a brother or sister in need, then I should be motivated to act. And my motivation should not be guilt, it should not be compulsion, it should be love. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. Here, use this to meet your need. And what I've learned in all those years since is that when I am sticking to God, And when I'm letting God's love stick to me, then it's natural to actively practice generosity. And this is one very practical way in which we can act out our love for one another. So we practice generosity and we meet needs. We avoid jealousy and other ungodly emotions. And when our actions are characterized by this kind of love, then our lives, yours and mine, will be pleasing to God. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want to live lives pleasing to God? That's what John emphasizes as he wraps up this passage. When we actively love one another, oh, our God is pleased. Let's take a look. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. I love that word abide. We've seen it show up so often. And it's what led me to the title of this sermon series. Because to abide means to stick. (laughs) When we abide with God, we stick with God. God wants us to be sticky Christians in a sticky community of faith. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us and he's going to stick with us. And we know this by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now that word in the passage condemn that we saw is a really interesting word. It translates a word from the original Greek and it literally means to know against myself. To know against myself. In other words, it's describing self-condemnation. I know something that's true, and that something that I know is true is against me. Ooh, I'm screwing up. The problem is oftentimes self-condemnation is highly subjective, and it causes us to tear ourselves down oftentimes unnecessarily. And John helps us see this by talking again about the heart because we're now back to the issue of feelings, which is where we started the passage. We can't trust our feelings. Our hope, our assurance comes from abiding with God. It doesn't come from how we feel about ourselves in any given moment because we cannot fully trust our hearts. As John said, sometimes my heart can be right and sometimes my heart can be wrong. What I need to do is not be led by my heart. What I need to do is spend time in the presence of God. I pray. I read scripture. I abide with God. And as I spend time in God's presence, then he molds me and he shapes me so that my attitudes and my actions are increasingly shaped by His love, not by my feelings. And as I love you, then I'm pleasing God because I'm keeping His commandments, including that greatest commandment, to love. And brothers and sisters, This is what truly pleases God. When we love Him, when we love each other, our God is pleased with us as His children. In verses 23 and 24, John wraps up this portion of his letter by reminding us that belief in the name of Jesus is the foundation of our faith. And the use of that term is really interesting because it's not one we use a lot, but very common in Middle Eastern culture. Um, I, I would never say, you know, Robin, I think you're a great guy because of your name. 
right? It's a cool name, but, right? But the Middle Eastern culture placed great value on the name because it captured your identity. And so if you believe in the name, then you're saying, oh, I believe in all of who you are. I believe in the totality of you as a person. I believe in all that you stand for and all that you represent. Believing in the name of Jesus means I believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. It means I believe in the incredible, sacrificial, unconditional of love of Jesus that he has toward us. And when I believe in the name of Jesus, it means that I believe in the importance of letting his love be evident in my life. When we believe in the name of Jesus, it means our default is not to love in word or talk, as John says, but to love in deed, actions, and in truth. John, the son of thunder who became the apostle of love, wants our life together to be marked by God's love. because a sticky community of faith abides in God. And therefore, we actively put the love of Jesus into practice each and every day. I spent a lot of time pondering this passage during the week. And I think this ancient advice from John is incredibly relevant today because we live in incredibly polarizing times. We face all kinds of cultural pressures that strive to divide us as the people of God. And the way to resist that pressure is to stick to God and to put John's words into practice. I have to tell you, one of the great heartaches of my life was to watch so many Christians struggle to love each other during the pandemic. When we looked at the Church of Jesus Christ across this country, what did we see? Christians fighting over masks, Christians fighting over vaccines. Christians fighting over the politics behind masks and vaccines. Churches were dividing over those issues. Some churches were so damaged by the fighting that they closed their doors. An unprecedented number of pastors left the ministry for good during the pandemic because their congregations refused to live in peace with each other and the pastors walked away in despair. Brothers and sisters, the pandemic was not an easy time. All of us were challenged to make prudential judgments based on imperfect information and then strive to do what we thought was right for ourselves and our families. And that's good and that's fair and that's appropriate. But too many of us went way beyond that and we vilified other believers who came to different conclusions than we did. That was a tragedy. And I believe it broke the heart of God 
to watch his children go to war with each other. John shows us a better way. The way he learned at the feet of Jesus. The way of godly love. And we need to keep embracing this message. We need to make God's love part of our identity individually and as a church. We need to continually practice it together because guess what? We have another polarizing event on the horizon. We have a presidential election coming up and it's a year and a half away and the temperature's already rising in our country. The opportunities for conflict in our society are great and the opportunity for that conflict to bleed into the church is great. But it won't happen and we'll stay united as God's people if we wholeheartedly embrace this timeless advice from John, the apostle of love. Let's not buy into the wisdom of the world. Let's not fill our hearts with ungodly attitudes and actions. Let's not embrace unhealthy emotions. Let's keep our eyes on each other and let's focus on meeting each other's needs. Let's stick to God and stick to each other and let nothing Nothing, nothing of this world divide us. Because we're God's children. And here's my prayer. That our passionate, active love for one another would always be one of the hallmarks of Thurston Christian Church. May that be what we are known for. Oh, those Christians, how they love one another. And brothers and sisters, that will be so inviting to the fractured culture outside the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sharing us with your love. We need to ask forgiveness for those times when we forget just how dramatic and transforming your love is. We need to ask forgiveness for those times when we forget to reflect your love to those around us. Help us, Father, to take our eyes off ourselves, to see the people around us, particularly those within the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And show us how each of us can give of our time and our talent and our treasure and even our belongings to demonstrate your love to one another as we meet each other's needs. Show us how we can stick to each other by more fully loving each other. I pray, Father, that your love would transform us so that we, in turn, can help transform others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.